love all different types of food myself, but I really had heard so many stories about people opening restaurants and failing. And for me, you know, it was something I could wrap my head around. One, I knew that the inventory would be small because um, it was fries and sauces. And two, I knew that I wasn't excluding any customer, whether you're old, young, rich, poor, heavy, skinny, it doesn't matter. Everyone likes, in every time period, in every country, a fried potato. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the restaurant industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, CEO of Wilco Foods. And today, my guest is Ian Vernon of Home Freet Restaurant someone we've had the pleasure of working with for uh, a good bit of time and somebody that I've been really looking forward to speak with for a variety of reasons. So, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Stephen, thank you for having me. This is really going to be a treat. And I was looking at your website, which is at uh, www.homefreet.com, and I'm really hungry now. So I, you can tell from the website they've got some amazing videos of the French fries. But if you would Please tell us a little bit about how you got into the restaurant business in general and then how it evolved or how you got into the, the home freed concept. Sure. I've always uh, loved food. I've loved cooking. There wasn't a million reasons why I chose fries. I lived in Brooklyn since about 2007, and I had been going to the food market, and I noticed that there was you know, a classic food category that wasn't being satisfied. And that was French fries. So really, I love the Palm Free in the East Village. And I thought that concept could be, you know, adapted, modernized. We could put a, put our own spin on things, make our own sauce. And it really took off. So what we did was we applied to Smorgasburg. I didn't hear anything. I still had a day job. And then a few months later, these organizers contacted me. And I uh, enlisted the help of the co-owner of Home Street, who's not with us today, Crystal Ringel, and uh, she really helped me make that a reality. And that's where we really grew. That's where we grew up. Our fan base was grown outdoors, uh, and we just did fries and dipping sauces, and we bring a, a mountain of fries every every Saturday and get rid of them. We were known for long lines and delicious cones of Belgian-style fries. So you were into food, and that was a passion of yours, but... The idea of home freed and focusing on fries really came out of just identifying that there wasn't something satisfying that particular demand in in the market you were looking at, right? Yeah, and I love all different types of food myself, but I really had heard so many stories about people opening restaurants and failing. And for me, you know, it was something I could wrap my head around. One, I knew that the inventory would be small because um, it was fries and sauces. And two, I knew that I wasn't excluding any customer. Whether you're old, young, rich, poor, heavy, skinny, it doesn't matter. Everyone likes, in every time period, in every country, a fried potato. And it, it goes with the trend. So we could adapt, whether it was gluten-free or if we needed to have a, a different flavor from you know, a different area of the world, we could do that with a dipping sauce. So that was attractive to me. Just you know, I haven't been into French fries since I was a, a little kid. I was into French fries as a business because it filled the need, and 
I thought that my chances would be good at success because of those reasons. It's really smart, and I think it's it's something to, to really reflect on because a lot of times people will get into a restaurant or a concept really emphasizing something that they love, but they don't really think about, is this a concept or is this something that's going to be sustainable for the long time? Does it have a wide appeal? In other words, people sort of are engineering it from what they like, when in reality, as with any other business, you want to sort of think of the customer first. And I think your thoughts are really well taken. It actually reminds me of the conversation I had in our last episode with uh, Sarita of Smack, which is a restaurant in the East Village that just focuses on macaroni and cheese. And what's so cool about that and what's reminding me listening to you, Ian, is she also, her and her husband, again, people who loved food, and she grew up watching her mother make traditional Indian food. But what led them to pursue the concept was they noticed that there wasn't anything like it in the neighborhood they wanted to be in, which was the East Village. And they've got an amazing restaurant that's been there since 2005, and it's scalable. It appeals to everybody. So very important when you're getting involved in the restaurant. Let me ask you, with the concept of French fries, what's more important, the fries or the variety of sauces and the quality of the sauces themselves? The fries, because a lot of people do focus a lot on our sauces. We make up to eight or nine different varieties at any given time of different sauces. And but the fries are the fries are king because they people get them without sauce. You know, some people prefer just seasoned fries. Uh, eat them like potato chips. You know, I like my favorite sauce that we have is our lemon garlic aioli. We make that fresh all the time. Uh, you know, every other day we're making gallons and gallons of it. And that goes great on our sandwiches as well. I never realized how versatile you could be with fries. I didn't have a chance. I remember about, um, it was probably the late 90s. There was a big trend for Belgian cuisine in New York. I had been to Europe actually before that. So maybe that was when I first got exposed to it. But my favorite condiment to use with French fries is mayonnaise, which is something I either picked up from the Belgian restaurants. It must have been before the late 90s or when I went to Europe. But that's another really great thing about French fries and about your concept is that it gives you and the consumer an opportunity to really get variety with something that's a staple. And it gives you and and the rest of your culinary team an opportunity to be really creative because you even see that now with other chains and other restaurants that 10, 20 years ago, you would never have a burger place that would have multiple dipping sauces, but now you do. And I think that's that's a really cool way to sort of keep your menu fresh and, and give your customers variety while keeping the staple product. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's something that's worked well for us. And beginning, one of the things that I wanted to do was tons of different types of French fries themselves, not only dipping sauces, but curly fries, sweet potato fries, you know, shoestring fries, et cetera, and poutine as well. But we learned quickly that uh, we had there was such demand for the French fries that we just went really deep into one type of French fry because we couldn't keep up with demand. So, you know, we just basically kind of identified what people wanted the most and, and went with that. And I'm not going to lie, I was really attracted to the, uh, I think it was Eric Schlosser's book, Fascination, or other people that have written about, you know, Ray Kroc and his sort of approach. That guy wasn't a very nice person, I'll, I'll say that. But the... Um, to identify what works in a restaurant and just go with that was something that I was attracted to, slimming down the menu. So that's what we started with. We started with just fries, and it really worked. Fries and drinks are really great menu items. When we started in 2013, that's all we did because we were outdoors at markets and festivals. Fast forward to 2016, I'm sorry, we, we expanded our menu again 
um, because we opened a full-service restaurant with a liquor license. So we added a uh, simple burger and really good fried chicken, something we could control the quality of. But even that, because I noticed in the restaurant, and again, the, your website's terrific. The restaurant is at one four, excuse me, one zero four seven Bedford Avenue. But I notice even even your menu is very manageable. Like it's got everything that you would want and everything that pairs really well with French fries and your concept. And there's a, a great deal of variety, but it's not overwhelming. And I think that um, you know what you're saying is really on trend because. One of the things that you're finding is becoming more commonplace, there was actually an article about it in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, is even in supermarkets where for many years, sort of the trend and the demand was to have 10 or 12 varieties of every item in the aisle. Now supermarkets are pairing it back to three or four. And what people are finding is that humans actually at a certain point, it becomes unpleasant to have too many options. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, you know. And from a business standpoint, it's really smart for inventory control and all of that as well. There's one school of thought that thinks, you know, maybe if you have a lot of options, that's freedom and freedom of choice, but not if you have 20 options that are mediocre. I don't want to walk into a store and look at 20 different cups of, of, of blue jeans. You know, I want or 20 different varieties. I want four different options that are good. And that's sort of the mantra that we believe in. And I was taken aback by restaurants that have a giant menus, you know, with endless options here. They had Greek food, Italian food, there was, there was Mexican dishes, there was all kinds of food in there. And you just know that some of the items aren't ordered very much. So, you know, we wanted a tight menu that we could control and execute everything on it very well. And I think another great benefit of having a menu that's very targeted and very clear and is not overwhelming is it conveys to the customer a, a very high level of credibility in the restaurant because they know that this is what you know you stand for, this is what the, the restaurant, the menu is about, and that you're focusing on the execution. And because of the fact that your restaurant is pretty much designed towards a, a type of cuisine that is so popular and transcends every demographic. There's really no risk that you're going to miss out on anybody because now you're associated with the place to go at Smorgasburg for fries or, or your restaurant. So I think it's a very smart way to go, particularly with the decisions you made. Have you seen the movie, The Founder? Because you'd mentioned Ray Kroc before. Yeah, with Michael Keaton. Yeah, I think a long time ago, when I, my memory from reading the book, I didn't have such a uh, such a horrible picture of, of the founder, but I did, I did see that movie. And then one thing that was interesting was he was willing to really play the border of cutting quality. And I have to admit, I do believe it's possible to do more of that, but we don't want to go down that road. I, I don't want to see what the lowest common denominator is. We look at ourselves as now we sell more than just fries. So we're sort of a shake shack that's really built around the French fry. So it's our fries first. And we've become known in our na this neighborhood here in Bedside, sort of the go-to place to get the best cheeseburger in town. So and now we have a really good reputation for a great cheeseburger, but our, our roots are the fries. So people come to get the burger and then they say, oh, but I had no idea that you guys were known for these fries. And you have all these pictures of your following at Morgansburg because most burger places don't focus at all on the fries. For us, we started there. So everything, including the sides, are really great menu items. 
That's a good point, which which reminds me of something here. But just on, I read the book Grinding It Out, which was Ray Kroc's autobiography, and then I watched The Founder, and I, I really like that movie because even though, particularly as he's portrayed in the movie, there's aspects about Kroc that are very unappealing and unsavory. There's a lot of inspiration in that movie, you know, his persistence, and there's some scenes in that movie that really stick with me. Like I remember the scene where, you know, the guy is starting this journey at 52 and he's at the country club trying to raise money from people who he's, I guess, raised money from before and other business ventures that have failed and they're laughing at him and he persists nonetheless. So for those of you out there that are aspiring to open your own restaurant or be entrepreneur, I think it's a well worth watching movie. I got a lot out of it in the book as well. But on the substantive point you made, Ian, something I can totally relate to is we have our own brand of products here called Holland and York. And when we decided to launch that concept, which many people have done, whether it's in the supermarket space or in the food service space, at least in the food service space, the main reason why people had done their own label in the past was the idea that if you can get the customer familiar with your label, then every few years you can see if you can bid out the underlying product to a less expensive packer and then your margins will be that much greater. And we took the exact opposite approach where we only partnered up with people that were the highest quality because we're really looking to build a brand here that's going to be viable outside of, of Woolco and our B2B customers. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. You know, on the one hand in business, it's it's always tempting and indeed important. Yeah, your pickles uh, are great. Thank I mean, you. For instance, there's a lot of crap pickle makers, new crap pickle makers in Brooklyn over the last 20 years. But there's also a lot of existing pickle makers in the metro area that have been producing pickles for much longer than that. And the, the pickle that you guys are providing is really good. The Holland and York, uh, we use it on our, on our chicken sandwich and the hamburger. It's, it's really consistent. It's really crisp. And we like it. It's, it's a high-quality pickle. I really appreciate that. You know, again, I think the strategy we've we've adopted here, and it sounds very similar to your strategy, and I think it works for the right type of, of business and as a, as a foundation is, is really quality. So like from our B2B standpoint, we're predicated on service and the customer experience from the Woolco standpoint. The whole philosophy that I have and everybody here has is, look, whatever we got to do for the customer, take care of it. We'll worry about costs and everything else later. But with the Holland and York, and, and I really appreciate your kind words, you know, there's items here that would lend itself to a Holland and York label if I don't feel confident enough in the quality that I would have it as a standalone brand, I won't do it. So I really appreciate that. I think what you're saying with respect to your restaurant, I've never heard of a restaurant in, in all the years I've been doing this. I've never seen a restaurant get into trouble because they made quality selections. There are restaurants and, and businesses in general that get into trouble because they don't manage costs, but it's never because they opted for quality. They may not have asked enough money for the end product because of the quality they were using or, or some other mistake was made, but I've never heard of anyone who, who went with high quality and had that be a problem because at the end of the day, it translates into the customer's experience. Mm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We do have a following. We are somewhat popular, but we don't just want people to try us. We need them to come back. And it's not just about it's not just about being popular or it's not just about running a business. We, we want to be part of the people's eating experience, their daily experience, and something they would tell their friends about when they come to town. No question. I mean, the, the most, I, I still think in this day and age, even with social media, even with all that uh, we have and the ability to communicate, there's nothing more powerful than word of mouth. 
It's the most impactful marketing and you get people that are fans of your restaurant, fans of your product. And so I'm curious, with Smorgasburg, tell me a little bit about what that was like the first year and what that type of dynamic brought to your brand, because it gives you, I would imagine, an opportunity to get exposure to people that have a variety of culinary interests. And also you get to be around people that are involved in many, many different types of of food and cuisine than what you're involved with. Yeah. So the one thing that was really nice about joining, I've worked in, in front and back of the house of uh, chain restaurants and mom and pop fine dining restaurants, but I've never managed a restaurant and I've certainly never managed a lot of people. So what was really helpful about that was that we didn't own a food truck. So we didn't have to worry about a permit or a place to keep that food truck. We had our van with our equipment in it and we had a commissary kitchen and that we were able to rent, you know, kind of a la carte shifts at. The overhead in the beginning, the startup phase was low because we rented kitchen shifts and we only did one day a week. But it was really nice because there was a, the nice thing was that there was a learning curve and there was a community of other like-minded, motivated individuals. You know, a lot of them were 20s, but a lot of them were older and there was a good mix of experience and a good mix of different people that came from different backgrounds in the food world in the industry, whether it was fine dining, catering, or, you know, working on a cruise ship, there was, we made a lot of friends and um, made a lot of good connections. It's excellent. It's always, I, I find that, and it's something I have to do more of, but every time I expose myself to people that are in a similar business or even even not a similar business, but just you know, entrepreneurs or, or people who are thinking about that. I always learn something. It always forces me to think differently and it's very helpful. Something you've done an excellent job navigating from my vantage point and something that's been obviously very challenging for everybody is the pandemic and all that's gone along with it as people who may not bed where you know, you're in New York City and obviously been a challenging few months. Tell me a little bit about how you reacted and have navigated that, both from the perspective, because I want to know the mechanics of it in terms of just, okay, these are the constraints they're putting on us, but this is how we're going to evolve. This is how we're going to adapt, all that. But also just the mindset, because it's a tough time for a lot of people. And I think to, to hear the mindset of people that are navigating, it can really help people out and, and, and give them some, some you know guidance, some hope, something to think about. Yeah, sure. One of the things that really helped us was that we had a business that was already almost 50% delivery. And for the for the year leading up to the, the, the shutdown, I had been racking my brain and trying to get people to work sort of a fast casual. We sell a really high-quality burger, but we're still viewed as a fast casual. Even though we have nice marble countertops, really nice interior. I was racking my brain trying to get people to stay and dine in and have more than one beverage. And that was that was a that was a hard thing to do. Still our delivery, still forty, sometimes fifty percent of our business. So once the shutdown happened, it wasn't really a problem because we were already on a lot of platforms and we had actually just consolidated those platforms. We were on Grubhub from the beginning, but we had added in two thousand nineteen we had added DoorDash and Uber Eats, Postmate. We also got our own website ordering system up and running. So we had all those things going before the pandemic. We were ready to go. The first week, we were open when other people weren't. And I think that really helped kind of establish us in the area. But there's other things, other factors that aligned for us that you know, we couldn't control. 
I've heard that with a lot of our customers, somebody that we were talking about before the show and um, also in bed is a great gastro pub called Black Swan. And as he mentioned in the interview, he had also really made the, um, I wouldn't say made the commitment, but he'd been fully utilizing delivery services for a couple of years before the pandemic. And therefore, I really do believe from my vantage point and seeing things in terms of what was going on. That those restaurants that had stayed open from the from the beginning and that were delivering, not only did they get the business from their loyal customers, but I really believe they probably got some market share for people who may have never tried a restaurant, uh, and now that there was limited options, or even if they tried a restaurant because they were ordering from it more frequently, they may have tried something new. And so I think there was a real benefit to being out there and, and toughing it out from the beginning, and now you're reaping the rewards from that. Sorry, there was one one thing that you said that in addition that really helped us out that I wanted to mention with all of the different platforms because it is it's quite a task because each platform has their own way of calculating their commission or their fee, so you can't just blindly sign up for all of them or you might lose your shirt, and you'll also end up with thirty iPads on your checkout counter. And you have to charge all of them and keep them all clean. So one thing that really helped us out with all these different platforms was using another app that consolidated all of them into one one iPad. And that one's called Kitchen Hub. And they took, you know, orders from our website or some Grubhub, orders from every tablet, and it would just appear all in one. Um, that was much easier for us to just get them all funneled into one area. Such an important and powerful piece of information that I hope everyone paid attention to and wrote down, because you're right, these delivery apps, these third-party delivery apps can be very helpful and can be very positive in, in a number of ways for, for businesses. And I spoke about that in an earlier episode, but it absolutely needs to be managed with precision because there's very heavy costs associated with it. It's well reported some of the issues that occurred with Grubhub and fees that were charged to restaurants. So I really congratulate you for getting your arm around those challenges early so that you were able to reap the benefits, because you're right. I think a lot of people who may not have done that and were trying to play catch up, it's a very uh, complicated and can be a very costly endeavor if it's not executed on properly. And uh, something that you know we had nothing to do with was the fact that we're in a residential area here, and that there's, of course, there's uh, tons of people that work in this area, but not nearly as many as commute to uh, Manhattan or elsewhere and eat their lunches elsewhere. So we were, in a way, when people were told to stay home, all of the restaurants that were in the city that were having trouble, it was because those people, to some degree, were in their neighborhoods. And we were situated in more residential areas. So I believe that's one reason why we had a bit of an uptick in our, our delivery. That, and I also think it was another benefit of the goodwill and reputation that you have as being part of the community. You know, I think one of the things that I noticed very early on in the pandemic was, you know, and this was in the first week, you know, the first days, maybe it's just because I'm thinking about this because it's so heavily related to what I do, but it seemed like every day or every other day, the news was reporting about restaurants. And the reason for that is because restaurants are such an integral part of people's lives. And I had thought about this a lot before the pandemic as well, because, you know, there's one school of thought out there which makes the argument or, or says, you know, well, you've got Amazon doing deliveries. And so the way things are evolving is people want to uh, be home and, and get the comfort of things delivered. And I always thought about that. And I'm not sure I gr agree with it completely. I don't think human beings, and this was what I was thinking before the pandemic, would willingly consign themselves to the harshest punishment known to man, which is solitary 
confinement. We're social. And I think the pandemic has proven me right conceptually because I know for myself, I'm looking forward eventually to going back to a Yankee game and getting out. And, and I'm like an introvert. So my point is that the connection that you've had with the neighborhood, the connection that people have with restaurants goes beyond just consuming food. There's an aspect to it, which is almost impossible to define with precision, but it's there. And I think that it's really terrific that that worked to your advantage because it's not so easy to cultivate that. And that's why I'm always stressing how important it is for restaurants, regardless of where you are, be a part of the community because the community and the people within that community that refer you to other people and recommend you, that's the foundation of success. Yeah, no, I, I do know what you mean. And I know the term, uh, it makes me think of the term ghost restaurant, which I don't like the term and dark kitchen. I don't know who would like that term. And those are restaurants that are really close to the public and they're just for delivery only. And that model has advantages and disadvantages. Like I said, we're doing a lot of delivery right now, but we don't get that same interaction with the customer. They don't get a dining experience. But the other thing that they're not getting is with delivery, as much delivery is being done right now, food quality. No one can argue that a burger delivered doesn't taste as good as a burger just brought to your table. So I think that that part of it will never change. So for that reason, people are going to want to go out and have that experience to get food fresh. You're always going to have people that don't care as much about freshness. Take coffee, for example. You've got the whole gamut of coffee. Some people are still drinking instant coffee every morning. Some people are refuse to do that. They're, they're grinding their own. They're and so you've got the whole gamut there. Um, and I do believe that people, especially, you know, you take something away from them and then that's when they realize that they, they enjoy it. And the experience of dining is one of those things, especially in New York. No question. And I completely agree with what you're saying about ghost kitchens. I interviewed a customer of ours and a friend of mine out here in Jersey City who owns a place called Ghost Truck Kitchen. But what his concept is, which makes it different, is his restaurant is for delivery and pickup only. So he's got a beautiful storefront. He's integrated into the community. When you think of these dark kitchens, you're really, it's not even what you think about. What they are literally, in many instances, are these trailers on the outskirts of town that it, with these darkened windows, and they're just there to prep food and have it delivered. I don't like that concept either, and I don't think that people would really buy into it at scale either. Whereas the concept of having, like you just said, as much business as you may be doing with delivery, people know that there's a brick and mortar there and they can stop in there and have a beer. Or one of the trends that I think is going to really become more and more substantial is pickup. Because as I was talking to Andrew, you know, when you're in a residential area like me, I've got three kids, I'm married. Sometimes I live in the suburbs now, but I used to live in New York City. But you know, so you want to get away for 10 minutes of quiet, right? Hey, you know what? I'll just go pick it up. Or you want to go down the street if you smoke and, and have a smoke or walk your dog. So I think that by creating a really compelling pickup option for customers, for those restaurants that are in residential areas, is also something that's going to be very viable. And the nice thing about it is there's no third-party delivery cost. Yeah, driving people to pick up and just to stop and visit the restaurant, you know. And uh, so that they are getting the food that's a little fresher. But I think right now that's all that people are going to be able to get. If they can't dine in the restaurant, their way of going out is going to be to go out to pick up food. And they can bring that for, you know, they can have their own their own picnic. But we're thinking about different things we could do to help that aspect and provide sort of lunch picnic baskets where, or take-home meal prep kits that people can cook on their own where we give them, you know, our beef blend and our buns and our cheese and everything and our seasoning. And then they can create that at home. 
fresh or, you know, they can have a barbecue. But And you serve beer as well, right? Yeah, we serve beer as well. And that's something that we've always been able to deliver beer. But we, you know, we also have the ability to serve cocktails. And with the SLA of New York changing their regulation, we were able to serve and deliver margaritas and serve them to go, which helps us tremendously. So, you know, today I'm just trying to design a curbside cocktail menu and get frozen margaritas right there from the window. I think that's been such a spectacular, and I I really hope, I'm not a political person and I'm not being political here, but I hope that the politicians in charge can really take this moment and recognize how beneficial it is to the hospitality industry to prolong the ability to sell cocktails well into the future. And I was born and raised in New York City. I honestly believe it would add a level of sophistication and another level of enjoyment to being in New York. Because if you go to Europe, you can drink cocktails on the street. And this is New York. And I just think that there's something really appealing about being able, like you said, you can go to your storefront window, get a margarita to go, get another cocktail to go, take it with you. I I really believe that this is something that they should absolutely continue into the future because every single restaurant that I've spoken with has had nothing but positive things to say about it. And every New Yorker that's availed themselves of the option loves it. So hopefully they're listening and they will uh, continue it because there's absolutely no reason not to. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a win-win for folks. I mean, I think I think restaurants enjoy it. I think the customers enjoy it too. Uh, you know, we're responsible to make sure that people aren't congregating right in front of our establishment and having you know an outdoor bar more or less just having all the commotion in the street. But we are we're by a bus stop. We don't have you know any any seating, any outdoor seating. We're just so people pick up the food and they, they take it home. Um, I think that's great. So I, I guess what I would sort of end with is, and this was. You know, part of the question, I'm not asking for a prediction about things that nobody has an idea about, but something I would be curious your thoughts on is how do you see things, let's say six months out, where hopefully things have been normalized? What lasting effects of what you had to do during the pandemic with respect to your restaurant? You know, we just talked about the cocktails. Hopefully that's a lasting effect. What lesson or what attributes or what changes or what adaptations did you make during this? that you feel are going to put you in a stronger position whenever things begin to become more and more normalized and that you look back and say, wow, but for the pandemic, I would not have done, I would not have thought of, and yet it's been something that's provided real lasting value. I mean, I'd have to say say marketing. I mean, every restaurant could benefit from marketing, but a lot of restaurant owners and staff or managers either don't have the time or they don't have the money and the budget to just spend on marketing. And this pandemic was organized into a well-oiled delivery machine, and we provide a lot of food each each and every night for the neighborhood. And um, that has really allowed us to focus on okay. So now that we have all this all this food production happening, you know, let's let's provide the promotions that we've always wanted to do. Let's do the marketing that we've wanted to do, and we're going to be able to walk away with that as a continuation. And because we really want to retain the customers that found out about us during this pandemic. If you don't mind, because I think your point is so vital, marketing, and I, and I just love marketing as a subject in general. Can you give me some, just one or two, I you know, specific marketing things that you introduced? Previously, you know, we had one person doing, doing the Instagram, maybe two two people. That was myself, and we had a photographer that was on and off. And I called him and I said, you know, we're not doing an outdoor market this year. But what we are doing is a lot of business online, and we want to we want to start selling milkshakes. You know, we want them to look beautiful tasty. So we really 
instead of just one person, I've got I've got my manager doing stories. I've got my other manager doing posts. And we have a photographer doing the pictures of the food. And we're incorporating promotions inside of our posts um, and not just Instagram, but you know, Facebook and Twitter and Google Ads. So those are things that we never, everyone could understand how that they are beneficial, but there's something that we never were able to actually execute. That's amazing. I completely agree with you. I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot. I, I'm always thinking about marketing, but I think this particular moment in time really compelled people to give it a level of emphasis and a level of urgency. It's like anything else. Sometimes success or what we believe is the utmost of our success or even a level of success that we're content with can sometimes work against us because then we lack the impetus. You know, I, I can speak for myself here, you know, being perfectly honest. When everything's going smoothly in whatever area, there's not that burning uh, impetus to continue to strive to improve and get better. And then when a challenge occurs, it automatically stimulates that. And I think marketing is one of those areas that a lot of different businesses and restaurants may not have been putting the level of emphasis into that in retrospect, they now see, wow, that's this is really important and is really beneficial and is really so key to every aspect of what we're doing. It's not just the food, the staff, the location, but getting the word out because it's not the best product that wins. It's the product that's known, which isn't to say you don't have an amazing product, but if people don't know about you, you know? It's, it's, it's the biggest sign. It's true. And we, you know, we, like I said, we want to retain those customers. And undoubtedly, when if the, if the stage is opened up magically 100% tomorrow, there would be a shift, just like we received a shift in an uptick in delivery. I'm sure we would shift in the other direction if the economy opened up instantly. So anticipating that, we want to retain customers and do promotions to what is now our biggest audience and our newest customers. And we have the most following online. So it's, it's going to be the most rewarding to market now. And you know, that's, that's really important to us. Ian, this was really a terrific interview. And I hope everyone that was out there listening, particularly people that are either in the business and, and are looking to improve or people who aspire to get into this business, it would be, I think, well worth your time to listen to this interview again and take some notes because what you covered in your approach is really exceptional on every level. And I, uh, I really have enjoyed this. For people that want to check you out, and this is obviously for anybody that and if there's such a person out there who doesn't like French fries or milkshakes or hamburgers, I've yet to meet them. It's Home Frite. You can check them out at Smorgasburg or their restaurant at 1047 Bedford Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. Their website, www.homefrite.com. Check them out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag Home Frite. And Ian, this was a real pleasure, and I am very grateful you took the time to speak with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Stephen. Well, that was a terrific interview. I could have spoken with Ian for a lot longer, but I didn't want to tie him up as we're heading into dinner here. I think it's a great interview for anybody, particularly those of you that are thinking about opening up a restaurant or a bar or any other business. A lot of information there that I would highly recommend you listen to the podcast again and, and take some notes. Um, so that you have it at the ready as you as you go on your journey of opening your business. Um, got a lot of emails over the past week. Some of them were very positive who really appreciated the fact that I recommended the Goggins book, Can't Hurt Me, as well as the podcast interview he did with Jay Shetty. I did get some 
uh, emails from people who would have preferred I just stick with the book recommendations. And I appreciate those emails as well. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I want this podcast to be of value to you. I want it to be something where it's not just entertaining, but that you come away having learned something so that it's beneficial and that you can utilize the information you're getting either in your business or some other aspect of your life. And I really want that to be the crux here. So I'm going to deviate again. Don't get mad at me. Those of you that want the book recommendations, I'm going to get back to those. But I've been getting Entrepreneur Magazine for years. And for some reason, I've been getting my hard copy. And I was uh, on the internet the other day looking for something, came across an article in Entrepreneur and could not finish it because I was not an online subscriber. So what I did was I clicked on the button and for $5 a month, I could subscribe to Entrepreneur Magazine. And I have to say, this was just yesterday and I've gotten well more than my $5 investment. So for those of you that are entrepreneurs that are either have your own business or thinking of opening a business, want to open a business, just want to think really smart, creatively differently about business. I love Entrepreneur and I highly recommend it to, uh, to everybody. And if you do take my suggestion and you do subscribe, uh, I just read an interview that Sarah Blakely of Spanx did with them, came out recently, and it's a great interview. So my recommendation this week is to read that interview. If you can get access to it and you don't want to subscribe, go for it. The, the interview is phenomenal. But just as a sort of secondary thing, I would recommend subscribing to Entrepreneur. There's a lot of great information in there and I think you really enjoy it. Other than that, I just want to thank everybody for their emails and their comments. If you like the podcast, please recommend recommend it to your friends. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Would love it if everybody would post comments. And again, keep the emails and the DMs coming. You can DM me at Instagram at Wilco Foods. Uh, you can email me at Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, at WilcoFoods.com. I appreciate every email. I read them. I respond to them. And um, I get a lot of value out of them. So I appreciate all of you. And I thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.